And turn with me, please, to the passage that we read, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. I'd like to consider with you this evening verses 61 and 62, but we'll read from verse 60. And Peter said, Man, I know not what thou sayest. And immediately while he yet spake, the cock crew. And the Lord turned and looked upon Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. We're living in a generation where men and women are encouraged to weave fantasies about their own lives. Uh, to present themselves as something they're not. And so there's a great deal of hypocrisy and falsehood being promoted. When we come to the scriptures, we have an altogether different approach. God speaks the truth. God is uh, presenting to us in the word realism. He faces, or he would encourage us to face, the realities of life. The Bible is an honest book. It's honest about our own condition. It's honest about the fact that we are uh, fallen and enslaved sinners under the wrath of God by nature. It's an honest book in showing us that no matter how much we might endeavor to live a good and upright life, we will fail because we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And when you read through the Bible, you find that it presents the people of God in an honest way. You think, for example, of how David is presented to us. Here is a man after God's own heart, and yet we have the record of his um, uh, adultery and of his murder of Uriah the Hittite. You think of Abraham, how Abraham uh, would have his wife put in a, a, a position of jeopardy in order to save his own skin by having her say that uh, she is his sister. And uh, you could multiply examples And here we have another one. We have Peter. And uh, we have to remember the the subsequent life of Peter. We have to remember that he is one of the foundational apostles of the Church of Christ. We have to remember that it was under his ministry uh, that he was uh, instrumental in uh, uh, the conversion of 3,000 men and women at Pentecost. And so it is good for us to remember that he is not presented in the book, uh, in the scriptures, as a plaster cast saint. He is shown to us as he really was. He was an impetuous man. He was a man who would do anything for Christ, it would seem. He was a man who, when he was in a tight predicament, caved in 
when you think of how uh, when the Judaizers came down um, in uh, Galatia and Paul had to rebuke him. And so here is an ordinary man with all the faults and failings and yet he's presented to us here for our edification and instruction. And so uh, we I want us to look at uh, this uh, experience of Peter because the experience of letting the Lord down, the experience of denying the Lord, the experience of backsliding is not an uncommon thing in the Christian faith. It is not something that most believers are um, uh, unfamiliar with. And so the passage shows us Peter with a sense of having betrayed Christ. And yet this passage, as we will see, is one of the most comforting passages in the Scriptures because it shows us um, uh, the way of restoration of a backslidden Christian. As uh, we look at this for ease of remembering uh, you'll find all these headings in the text. Um, uh, you will find that we can look at this, these verses under three heads. The look, the word, and the weeping. So that is, that's where we're going this evening. Let's consider in the first place the look. We are told um, uh, that uh, uh, the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. So Peter must have been within earshot and eye sight of the Lord. And you think of Christ's experience at that moment. He is being smitten, he is being ridiculed, he is being unjustly accused, and uh, here is the man who swore that he would lay down his life for Christ, and yet there he is, um, uh, in the garden, uh, in, in uh, the temple garden, and he is denying the Lord. In other words, we see that on this night, when Peter is deepest in his backsliding, the Lord sees him. The Lord sees him. And that reminds us, does it not, that the Lord sees us. And uh, we must not think that our self-examination over these days is the first exposure of sin either to ourselves or to the Lord. The Lord knows how we have lived. The Lord knows what we have thought. The Lord knows all about us. He, as we were singing in Psalm 139, he knows us intimately. He knows us inside out so that this look of Jesus was a specific look of, um, of the Lord to Peter. He looked at him right at that moment of his backsliding, right at that moment of denial. You see, the Lord doesn't just look upon us when we're behaving ourselves. The Lord doesn't just look upon us when we are seeking uh, to follow him diligently. But the Lord sees us at all times. He knows what we do in secret. He knows what we do behind closed doors. He knows what we do in our minds and in our hearts. 
There is not a word in our tongue that is unknown to the Lord before we even speak it. That is the nature of the knowledge of Christ, of his people. And we can actually fall into the mistaken notion that we can hide from the Lord. You see, if we are going to sin and we don't want it seen publicly, we can close the door, we can draw the curtains, we can do whatever we want, we can hide away. And there is this strange notion in our minds that this keeps God out. And yet here we are reminded that God knows, that God sees, that the Savior is aware of all that we are doing and thinking. So there's nowhere we can hide from God. And so as we come in our self-examination, it is foolish to even hold back something that we don't want to confess. It's foolish to pretend that even when we confess our sins, that we have covered everything. Because the Lord knows us better than we know ourselves. We have a tendency to minimize certain sins and to uh, exacerbate or, or uh, exaggerate, rather, other sins. But the Lord sees sin for sin. Whether it's big or small, he sees it. Here is one who is seen by the Lord, and he is a man who had received great privileges. Doesn't that hit home to us? That when we sin against the Lord, when we're in a state of backsliding or spiritual coldness, we are people who have been called by God. Think about that. Just like Peter, called by God. There were many fishermen on the shores of the Sea of Galilee when Peter was called, but Peter was called by God called by the Savior. And that is true of every true believer here, called. We are his. We have been saved. We have been given special revelation. Our eyes have been enlightened in the knowledge of Christ. What privileges the um, uh, saint of God has received from the Savior. And this has to be seen, uh, this denial of Peter has to be seen against the background of Christ's self-sacrifice and suffering for those like Peter. We are reminded that we are indebted to Christ that we owe our very spiritual life and existence to Christ. Indeed, more than that, in him we live and move and have our being. And so this look is a look that is penetrating. It sees everything. It's a look at a man or a woman with privilege, a man or a woman who has been given all things in Christ. But what did Christ see that night when he looked at Peter? Well, what he saw was denial. He saw denial. You can hardly believe that this is the same man that you read of earlier on in this chapter. 
And yet that's the reality of it. It was complete denial. It wasn't just a, a slip of the tongue. It wasn't just an uncalculated response to the little maid that challenged him. It was a threefold denial. I know not the man. Think about that. So it was a complete denial and it was vehement. Man, I know not the man. He's determined to emphasize this. Think about that. I don't know the Christ who saved me. I don't know the Christ who gave himself for me. That is how we can end up if we continue along the path of backsliding. And it was blasphemous. We are told that he blasphemed, that he swore. This is most dreadful because it's done in the very presence of Christ. And what I'm speaking of there is the physical presence of Christ. If Christ was close enough for Peter to hear what was happening to Jesus, Jesus was close enough to hear what was happening with Peter. To hear the blasphemy. You know, when we think about Christ going to the cross, we often speak about all earthly comforts being removed from him. He has to face the treading of the winepress of the wrath of God alone. In the garden, he is seen as seeking even the support of his three closest disciples. And they couldn't help him there. And it's almost as though Peter is, as it were, putting the final nail in the coffin. And as Christ looks around, all he sees was the most faithful disciple denying him. He goes to the cross in the knowledge of that. Indeed, as we will see, he knew that was going to happen. And so he denies Christ and he denies him in his very presence. He denies him at a time when his witness was needed most. And we are reminded in this that God's people can fall fearfully. God's people can fall fearfully. There's only one sin that the people of God are kept from, and that is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. They are liable to any and every other sin. And that is a fearful thing. Does that not want, does that not make you want to draw closer to Christ? Does it not make you want to find refuge and security in Christ more? And yet the reality is that so often we backslide. So often we treat sin indifferently. So often we deny our Lord. Peter failed to speak when he ought to have spoken. 
He was passive in the face of ungodliness. And it's his own fault he's there. He wasn't dragged into the courtyard. He wasn't forced to go into the courtyard. He is there and he is in that position due to his own carelessness, presumption and self-reliance. And he is overcome by the fear of man. And there's a a, 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 a catalogue of what will cause us to fall and deny our Lord. It is carelessness. We are told watch and pray. Are we watching and praying? We are told that we are not to be presumptuous. Don't presume on the grace of God. We are told not to rely upon self, but crucify self. And we are told that the fear of man is a snare. So that here is Peter, and this is what Jesus is looking at. You'd think there's no hope for Peter. Now I don't know what your life is, and you don't know what my life is. But dear friends, I'm sure each of us, as we examine ourselves, are unhappy with what we find. And we should be. Self-examination uncovers sin. And if we examine ourselves, we will find sin. And I hope you're not happy with it. And so here is Peter and he is in the presence of Christ. And yet he is in such a dire spiritual state. And then we are told in the second place that he turns. The Lord turned and looked at Peter and Peter remembered the word of the Lord. How he had said unto him before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. Peter remembered the word that Christ had spoken. What is this telling us? It's telling us that Peter was culpable for his sin. He can't blame anybody else. Christ had told them in the garden, Watch and pray lest ye enter into temptation. He was told in the upper room, Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to have you that he might sift you as wheat. And so we see that Peter is culpable. It's not that he had no warning. It's not that Jesus didn't, as it were, raise the red flag and say, Watch, Peter. Be careful, Peter. And yet here it comes. Boom, boom, boom. I know not the man. Before the cock crows. Thou shalt deny me thrice. You see, backsliding, spiritual coldness, indifference to sin is always the fault of the saint. It's not God's fault that you're cold. It's not God's fault if you're backslidden. 
It's not something you can pin on the decree of God and say, it's because you've made me this way. Dear friends, that's blasphemous. God is not the author of sin. And so God may bring us into many difficult situations to test if our love for him has grown cold or if our minds have drifted far from Christ. And if we find that our hearts are cold, and if we find that we are not, as it were, trusting in Christ as we should, then, dear friends, let's be honest. As the Bible is honest, the fault is ours. We are the ones who are culpable. We are culpable because Christ has warned us against temptation. It's not just to Peter and the other disciples that the watch and pray exhortations go out. It's to every believer, watch and pray. We are told that the devil is like a roaring lion going about seeking whom he may devour. We are told that he can appear as an angel of light. Throughout the uh, scriptures we are given again and again this picture of an adversary who is seeking our destruction. We can't uh, uh, claim ignorance. We can't say, I didn't know. But that's not the only reason we're culpable. We're culpable because Christ has provided all the resources necessary to resist the devil. There is no temptation overcome you such as is common to man. And with the temptation, God has provided a way of escape. And that's the reality. Now I know, and you know, that there are times when temptation comes and it comes like an overwhelming flood and it beats against us again and again and again and there's the temptation to give up and to just let it take its course because we've failed so often in the past. But our failing is not because there's not a remedy. It's because we've given up. What should we do when we are faced with our backslidden state? What should we do when we are faced with coldness and indifference to the things of God? We should flee to Christ. Now you've heard that so often, but that is the remedy. Flee to Christ. Because there is no other place we can have spiritual defection dealt with and our spiritual love restored. It's not a question of doing better in this area of our Christian life or that area of our Christian life, although these things ought to be so. It is flee to Christ. And the wonderful thing is this, that that is the remedy that God has provided. 
You remember what the psalmist said, What time my heart is overwhelmed and in perplexity, do thou me lead unto the rock that higher is than I. What higher rock is there than Christ? And he is able. And he is willing. So these temptations don't take place in a vacuum. Falling into sin doesn't take place in a vacuum. Backsliding doesn't take place in a vacuum. It takes place against the word of God that says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Cast your burdens upon the Lord and he shall sustain you. There are all these promises given in the word. And here the word is coming home with a vengeance to Peter. Because it's a word that crushes him. He knew that what Jesus said in the upper room was true. He knew it not only because he believed Jesus told the truth, but he knew it because he was thick in the thick of it. And he had disregarded that word of warning. We're culpable. And what we should be doing as we examine ourselves and as we find our sin and as we bemoan our spiritual coldness is to seek the Lord. Come to him with your spiritual coldness. Come to him with your backsliding. Come to him with your besetting sin and lay it before him. And ask him to deal with it. And ask him to cover you in the righteous robe of his own righteousness. Why was this word so important at this time? Because Peter had forgotten the word. Notice what he says. Peter remembered the word. Which implies he had forgotten the word. When we sin against the Lord as Christians, especially as mature Christians, it's not because we don't know what we ought to be doing. We've sat under enough gospel sermons, expositions of Bible books. We've read enough of the scriptures day by day in our daily readings. We've read a multitude, no doubt, of good Christian books. We know what we should be doing. But we forget it. We forget to live for Christ. And we end up living for self. And so here is Peter. And uh, Peter had been warned, but he forgot it. Why did he forget it? Well, let's think of the situation. He had been party to the most wonderful revelation of truth in the upper room. It had been a time of great blessing. We don't, we read through John 13 to 17, and we're amazed at the profundity and the depth of what these disciples were told. He had times of great blessing. You, especially the older ones amongst you, you know that it was not uncommon 
at the end of a communion season for the uh, minister to warn about coming down the Mount of Ordinances. And what they were meaning was this. You've had a time of blessing. You've been drawing near to God in Christ. You've perhaps experienced some sweetness of his uh, closeness and presence. Be careful. Be careful. Because blessed times don't make you immune to this, uh, the satanic um, devices. And maybe it is that you had a time of blessing and you've grown presumptuous and you're very thankful. What wonderful things the Lord has done. And you have neglected to watch and pray. Sometimes we forget, not because we've had those great spiritual blessings and we have become, um, uh, as it were, careless, but sometimes the problem is the activity and pressures of the Christian life. And when I say that, you think about Peter. He was anxious for and careful for the Lord himself. He was ready to give his life for Christ. He was the one who drew the sword. He was the one who would have fought to the death in the garden if he had been allowed. You see, sometimes we can get so caught up in uh, the business of the church, in the outward manifestations and um, exercises of being a Christian that we forget to watch and pray. You've all heard of people who get so wrapped up in church life that they neglect their family. You think they're doing good. Yes, they're doing good. But the best is being neglected. Fellowship with Christ is being neglected. The saint often backslides because they're involved in good things. And the good things lead them to neglect their own spiritual lives, their own spiritual exercises. And so Peter forgot the word. And we must ask ourselves, how did we come, if, and I'm not assuming that all of you here are in this condition, or even any of you, I don't know your hearts, but if we ask the question, what, what has brought us to spiritual coldness, if not now, in past times? And those are the things we have to watch and pray about. You can see the importance of studying and reflecting upon and applying the word of God to your lives. It's one of the things that um, a, a good Christian teacher will um, uh, inculcate in a, a young convert. Read the Bible. Read the Bible. And that's one of the most important things you can do. 
Oh, it's good to read good Christian books. I'm not saying don't read good Christian books, but make sure you're reading the Bible. Take time over it. Let it take precedence over all else. Sometimes you get into the habit of only reading the Bible before you go to bed. And how many nights do you get to that point? And you're so tired, you can hardly keep your eyes open and you read the same sentence over and over again because you're falling asleep. Is that giving priority to the Word of God? Read the Bible when you are awake. If you're not a morning person, read it at night. If you're not a night person, read it in the morning. And so you see how the word comes home to us. It's the word that convicts us as we are examining ourselves. It is the application of that word by the Spirit of God that comes home to us. So we have the look of Christ. And then we have the word of Christ. And then we're told, and Peter went out and wept bitterly. Why is he weeping? Well, he's weeping, obviously, because God saw, uh, Christ saw him or looked at him. And the word of God came home to his conscience. He's weeping because he realizes the enormity of the sin he has committed. Do you wonder at the enormity of that sin? Remember how Peter opens his first epistle. He speaks about being begotten again from the dead by the resurrection of of Jesus Christ. Now you might think that's speaking um, uh, uh, about, well, obviously it's speaking about the resurrection, but that's not the focal point. It is that Peter was begotten again. He was like a man who had died this night. You remember how he's dealt with by Jesus at the Sea of Galilee. What tenderness there is there. What did he expect? He had seen Judas betray Christ and gone away and hanged himself. Did he expect Christ to reject him? I think he did. Just as you and I, when we examine ourselves... We ask the question, how could God love the likes of me? How could God put up with my sin? And here is Peter, and it's as though he's died. You imagine if you fell out with a near and dear relative, maybe a brother or a sister. You fell out big time. And you were estranged. And then they died. That's over. You can't take back what you said. You can't apologize. You can't, re you can't reconcile. It's over. It's finished. Jesus Christ is dead the next day. 
and Peter couldn't ask for forgiveness. So he thought, begotten again. How? Because Jesus rose from the dead. He had this second chance, as it were. Well, dear friends, we are in many respects like Peter. But our Savior is always living. And we can always go to the Savior and confess our sin. And we know from his own lips, how often shall I forgive my brother that sins against me until seven times? Nay, I say unto you, unto seventy times seven. The perfect number multiplied by itself. Seventy times seven. Fullness, completeness. You can go and confess your sins and he will pardon your sin. Realizing the sin we have committed might take a while. It's one of the things when we're in a backslidden state, isn't it? Those of you who have been there. You may know that you're in a backslidden state. And yet, month after month goes by. And you're still in a backslidden state. You know you should go to Christ, but you're still in a backslidden state. When David sinned against God in the matter of Bathsheba and Uriah, it was nearly a year before that realization of sin dawned on him. Now, he knew all the time he was a sinner. But he didn't see that it was against thee, thee only, have I sinned. He didn't grasp that until Nathan the prophet comes to him. But when it does come, it is accompanied by shame and guilt and sorrow. And that is why he went out and wept bitterly. There was shame for what he had done. There was guilt and there was sorrow. Now, dear friends, don't you go away thinking, firstly, that if you get shame and guilt and sorrow, you're saved. And don't go away as a Christian thinking, because I don't have the shame that I should have, and I'm not as sorrowful as I should be, and I'm I'm uh, not feeling as guilty as I should be that I can't go to Christ. Go with your sin, irrespective of how sorrowful, how guilty, how um, ashamed you feel. Go with your sin to Christ. Don't you be con giving or making conditions about what you have to do before Christ will forgive you. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Not get rid of your burden and then come. Come in your ladenness and your burden. So this weeping was caused by a realization of the sin committed, but it was also caused by repentance. What is repentance? It is a turning away from sin and a turning unto God. 
a turning away from sin. What does he do? He flees the courtyard. He should never have been there in the first place. He flees the courtyard. And we are taught in the epistles to avoid all occasions to sin. If you know that going to a certain place or being in the company of a certain person causes you to sin, don't go there and don't be with that person. That's just common sense. But it's biblical common sense. We are to flee from sin. You remember the Thessalonians. They are commended because they turned to God from idols. You think of the Ephesians who were steeped in witchcraft. They bring out all their books and they burn them in the, uh, the marketplace, turning to God from idols. That is how you must respond to this realization that you're in a backslidden state or you are cold and indifferent, you must turn from it to Christ. You will never be recovered if you stay where you are. You will never be, as it were, reheated as a Christian unless you go to Christ. And so sin will be abhorred. You'll hate it because it's driven a wedge between you and your God. That's what sin does. Your sin has separated between you and your God. And so turn from it. It is abhorred. And sin is taken seriously. And we seek God's mercy. But this weeping also has another cause. It's based on the hope of the mercy of God. I mentioned earlier, Judas had, uh, had denied the Lord. And you know the outcome of Judas. And yet, here is Peter and he denies the Lord. But there's a world of difference between Judas and Peter. And the difference is this. Peter had hope. And it was hope based upon the word. Both of them had denied and both of them were convicted. But Judas had no anticipation of mercy from God. Well, where does the mercy for Peter come from? Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to have you to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you. That your faith fail not. Dear Christian friend. You may have drifted. You may be far off from where you should be as a Christian. You may have backslidden grievously. But listen to this. I have prayed for you says Jesus. That your faith fail not. Peter is able to say. That we have an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, reserved for you, or kept for you, uh, sorry, reserved for you, 
and we are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. Isn't that a wonderful word of encouragement? Even to any of us here who have drifted so far, I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. Take that word, that word of Christ, and fan that little faith you have left into a flame. Ask the Spirit of God to stir you up. Ask the Spirit of God to enliven you. Ask the Spirit of God to quicken you. Ask the Spirit of God to give you a hatred and an abhorrence for that which is driving a wedge between you and your precious Savior. Ask, and ye shall receive. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and the door shall be opened unto you. Don't you see? The hope of God's mercy. It's everywhere in the scriptures. It's laid before the saints of God that when they fall, they can come to him and cast themselves upon them and be sure of a reception. This, I said at the beginning, is one of the most comforting verses in the Bible because it not only shows the terrible depth to which a sinner may go, but it shows us that they can be healed of their backsliding. I will heal their backsliding, says the prophet, and love them freely. But it shows more than that, because we know the history of Peter. And it shows that this recovery of the backslider is a recovery that can bring them into usefulness in the church of God. Peter, this terrible denier of the Lord, becomes bold as a lion on the day of Pentecost and sees 3,000 souls converted under his ministry. Oh, dear friends, there was no presumption that day there was no carelessness that day. There was no self-centeredness that day. It was Christ and all of Christ. And here is this poor sinner recovered and brought back to usefulness. It may well be that as you've examined yourself, you have been disgusted at what you found. And you may wonder, how, how can I be a Christian? And why would God have anything to do with me? Well, dear friends, I can't tell you why he would have anything to do with you. Because I can't tell you why he would have anything to do with me. But I do know this. That he can take us. And he can recover us. And he can forgive our sins. And as we come casting ourselves upon Christ, he can revive and quicken our souls and enable us to serve him. Even this coming Lord's Day, as we sit to profess him at the table of the Lord, 
Let us pray. Father in heaven, we bless thee and thank thee, for thou art a merciful God. Thou art a long-suffering and patient God. And as we consider the despite we have done to Christ again and again, what a wonder it is that there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. Lord, we pray for any uh, to whom this word has spoken this night. Stir us up to newness of life. Enable us by the Spirit of God to turn and seek thy face and thy favour. O Lord, heal our backslidings. Love us freely, and thou shalt have all the praise and glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Let us conclude singing from Psalm 32, and we'll sing verses 5 and 6. Psalm 32 at verse 5. I thereupon have unto thee my sin acknowledged, and likewise mine iniquity I have not covered. I will confess unto the Lord my trespasses, said I, and of my sin thou freely didst forgive the iniquity. And so on to the end of verse 6. stand for the benediction. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen.